0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're starting an exciting new series this week called Your Salvation Story with a message entitled Understanding Genuine Conversion. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: There are a number of places in the Bible that give us a rather dramatic picture of people who appeared to be saved but weren't. Most likely Judas comes to mind, but there are others. You know, Acts 8 speaks about the evangelist Philip, and he went down to Samaria to preach the gospel, and in the process, a man named Simon the Sorcerer was there. He was schooled in the Magic Arts and seems to have had quite a following. But in Acts 8, verse 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. But then later, when Peter and John arrive, and when Simon sees how the Holy Spirit comes on people, Simon says, Give me this power. And of course, he wants to buy it. And then Peter says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then after that harsh encounter, it would seem that Simon is repentant, and he even asks Peter to pray for him that he doesn't come under the judgment and condemnation of God. Well, that's all the Bible says about this man named Simon, but but what became of him? Uh, We do know that both Justin Martyr and Arrhenius, those were early church leaders from the second century, they claimed that Simon continued to use his sorcery after his supposed conversion. Indeed, they claim that he founded a Christian version of Gnosticism, which became a very powerful false teaching, threatening the early church. And furthermore, the term simony means to use religion as a means of profit. So we've got Judas Iscariot. We've got Simon the sorcerer. Are there others? Well, sure there are. Listen to 2 Timothy 4 verse 10. It simply says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Or listen to John's words in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Or listen again to Paul's sobering words in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? Now, here we might want to ask, how do we test ourselves? So I hope you can see how important these questions are. You know, I have on more than one occasion, my ministry, I've seen individuals who were in church for a great many years, and they had no idea they weren't born again what a glorious conversion it was when they came to Christ and they said, you know, I I didn't know I was blind until now. But as much as I rejoice in such wonderful news, I do know it is possible for an individual to deceive himself or herself. You know, I have a memory in this regard of a woman who had invited a number of us to come and hear her testimony. And as she told her story, I became increasingly concerned. And she told of an abusive and a drunk father about a cruel sister, about a first husband who had died. And then she told the story of all the unworthy people around her. And it became clear that she alone, at least that's how her story went, that she alone had the noble impulse to live for God. It became clear that she was the hero of her story. She was not the sinner, unworthy of grace, giving glory to the cross of Christ for his amazing mercy. No, no, it was the story of someone who had done the right thing. Indeed, she was courageous and good enough even to give her life to Christ. You know, it wasn't long after that that she left her second husband saying that, well, he wasn't spiritual enough. And apparently, according to her, you know, he liked to watch Hockey Night in Canada on Saturdays rather than using the time more wisely in prayer. Well, she went with another man who was more spiritual and more worthy and more up to her level. I, I know it's a bizarre story, but I know of many people who have the strangest testimony. See, when they tell their story, there's never a sense of their own sin or the awareness of God's righteous judgment and of their own unworthiness even to this very day, or of the mercy of God. Instead, it's about being you know, raised as a Christian and determining to live for God. And Jesus told a parable about a sower who went out to sow. And the parable is found in Matthew 13, and Jesus says that his message will fall on a number of different kinds of people. Some will simply not understand his gospel, and so their hearts will remain unmoved. And others will accept what he's teaching, but they will never accept the message of a gospel that compels them to suffer. And so when suffering does come, and it will, they simply fall away. And still others have a love of evil or a deep love of sin in their hearts, a sin that they're unwilling to renounce. And eventually, the cares of this world and the love of wealth and all the things that the world offers will choke out the word. But says Jesus, there are those who will hear his gospel and welcome it with joy, and their lives will produce a wonderful harvest of righteousness. Now, without examining this, parable in detail. I've done it in another place when I did a study on Matthew 13. But let me say here that at the very heart of what Jesus was teaching is that there are some who will appear to all to be believers or to be converts or to be born again. But in time, the fact that they were never in Christ will show itself for all sorts of different reasons. Again, we're left to examine the mystery of conversion. But if things are like that, Well, can anyone be truly secure in their salvation? And the glorious answer is yes, they can. And that, my dear friends, is what I'm doing on this brief one-week series on conversion. I want us to see what the Bible truly teaches about this amazing subject matter. See, it may be that there are those who are struggling with security of their salvation, who after hearing this will be deeply satisfied and deeply encouraged and deeply grounded. Yeah, they're going to say, I was truly converted. Even though I'm far from perfect, and even though that I know that today I still continue to struggle with sin, I see all the evidence that Christ lives in me by his Holy Spirit. But there may be some who listen to me who find no evidence of a new life begun. Rather than seeing this teaching as a threat, you will see this as a place of surrender, and because of this, experience genuine conversion. And still for others, if let's say you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a parent or someone who's charged with leading Christians, well, it's my prayer that you are given the tools to help people examine themselves. Notice, however, what I didn't say. I'm I'm not calling us to form judgments about others. You know, for this coming to conclusions about who's a genuine believer and who's a fake, well, this is not given for us to do. Indeed, the parable of the wheat and the weeds reminds us to leave this matter until the time of the judgment. If we attempt to do the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll create an atmosphere of suspicion and judgmentalism and eventually to the tyranny of works theology. So instead, let's commit to give others and ourselves the tools of self-examination. So where do we begin? Well, let's define conversion. And strangely enough, let me begin with the First Testament. I'm reading here Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27, which is a prophecy by Ezekiel about the day when the new covenant comes. And Ezekiel prophesies and he's speaking for God. In fact, God is speaking and he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, did you notice all the promises that God makes? Indeed, the word I, both stated and implied, are said over and over again in this passage. Remember, it's God speaking. I will give you a new heart. That's what God's going to do. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You know, that tells us that conversion is the work of God. It's not about moral reform. You see, to be converted, it's not like New Year's resolutions. We don't say, I'm gonna commit myself to love God more and trust Him and obey Him. No, no, that's not what this passage says. Rather, it promises that God will supernaturally perform a work in us. It's God's work, not ours. See, did you notice that John 1, 12 to 13 says the same thing? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, there are two things here. One is the act of receiving him, which clearly that is something we do. And as we go through this study, I'm gonna return to that theme. But to all who received him, God acted and they were born again. Notice what verse 13 says. They were not born of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. They were born of God. And that's the nature of genuine conversion. Anyone converted is born of God, born of the will of God. And therefore conversion is the same as regeneration. So regeneration, conversion, the new birth, I mean, all of this is an act of God. When God grants us a new spiritual life, the heart of stone is taken out. In its place, God puts a heart of flesh.
0: What does it mean to be converted? It's a term not always embraced in today's society. It's often misunderstood or even poorly defined. But by taking a closer look, we begin to understand the breadth and depth of what it means to be saved. Dr. John's newest series, Your Salvation Story, is a five-message series on the nature and reality of experiencing true conversion. What happens when someone's converted? Can a person lose their salvation? Is it possible to keep sinning after being genuinely saved? What's God's role and what's my role? We want you to not only join us this month as Dr. Newfeld teaches this series, but we also want you to have this series on CD as our free gift. So just call us and ask for your salvation story. And if you're able, please consider offering a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I'm reading John 3, 7, and 8. You know, Jesus is in a conversation with a Pharisee, a leading religious teacher in Israel. His name is Nicodemus, and he's come to see Jesus. And in the process, Jesus tells Nicodemus that being religious doesn't count. Doing his best doesn't count. Learning to observe even the law of God won't make you right with God. Instead, says Jesus, you must be born again, for if you're not, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Jesus clarifies, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So when Jesus says you must be born again, he means you must be born of the Spirit or born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that to be born again is exactly equivalent to being born of the Spirit. And so we can say that if we are to receive a new heart, that it has to be the third member of the Trinity, the the Holy Spirit, who gives us this new heart. And we also know that the other members of the Trinity are also involved in this action. You know, for instance, Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, if you haven't learned this before, let me teach it to you now. In the New Testament, whenever we read the word God, we're almost always referring to God the Father. God in the New Testament, if you will, is shorthand for God the Father. And when the New Testament speaks of Lord, most often that's shorthand for God the Son. Look, I know that Jesus is fully God, the New Testament teaches us that, but at the same time, the New Testament never confuses the persons of the Trinity, and it's usually quite concise as to which member of the Trinity is being referred to, whether referring to either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. And so, in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, we're told that once, that is before our conversion, we were dead in trespasses. And that means that we were in sin. That is, we were by nature the enemies of God. And by nature, we loved the sin in which we lived. But, says our passage, it was God the Father who made us alive together with the Son that is with Christ. The passage says that the Father gave us, at our conversion, the same kind of life that Jesus received in his resurrection. So, conversion, regeneration— the new birth, well, all of that is the same as eternal life or the life of the resurrection or the life that will never end. Now then, please see that we already know that the New Testament never confuses the members of the Trinity. And yet, in John chapter three, we were told that we were born of the Spirit. And yet in Ephesians two, we are told that we were made alive by the Father. Well, what gives? I think the answer is obvious. It was the Father, says Ephesians 1, verse 7, who predestined us into our inheritance. So how did the Father do that? Well, he did it by sending the Holy Spirit, who went out from the Father to accomplish that for which the Father sent him. So look at it this way. Once we were dead to God, we were dead to his ways. We were dead to his commands. We, we were dead to his gospel that was offered to us in Jesus. Our hearts were made of stone. We rebelled by nature. I mean, either we didn't understand what he was saying, as as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, or we didn't want the cross, or we still loved our own sin, and we certainly weren't going to let the gospel get in the way of pursuing the things that we loved. But whatever we were, we were dead, as dead as a corpse that's lying in a coffin. See, you can talk to a corpse and tell that corpse that we're having really nice weather today, or you can tell the corpse of the great love of God tell the corpse about the joys of believing, or tell the corpse how it is that life becomes better when we humble ourselves before God, or tell the corpse that repentance and acknowledging our sin is not demeaning at all, but it's a great blessing. And I'll tell you what that corpse will do. It will be unresponsive. It takes resurrection to get a response. Now, look, I'm going to say a great deal about what we must do in order to be converted, but I fear that when we start by talking about what we must do, and when that's all that we talk about, then we're talking about human means rather than the miraculous work of God in a heart. So let's talk about the conversion of our souls from the perspective of the Bible. Ezekiel promised that the heart of stone would be replaced. Jesus promised that God the Holy Spirit would give a new birth and Ephesians promises that a man or woman dead to God will be made alive. Conversion is a miracle, it is regeneration, it's life from the dead, it's dramatic, it's transformation, it's resurrection life, it's breathed into a dead corpse. And I make all of these points for two reasons. For I make this point because that's what the Bible teaches, but I also make this point so that we might examine ourselves Let me begin by asking, is your religion a matter of what you've done, or is it a matter of what God has done in you for you? Can you explain your conversion by appealing to your decisions, or are you left by explaining it in appealing to God's mercy, in which He granted you life where once there was only death? You remember my story about the woman who had invited everyone to hear her testimony, and and then as she gave it, she was clearly the hero of her story. Yes, she told of all the decisions that she had made, but in the end, I was left with this debug in my heart. Who received glory when she was done? Well, she did. But a true conversion genuinely paints God as the hero and us as the villains. I was lost. I was dead. I was a sinner by nature. I may have suffered injustice at the hands of others, but I also know that others have suffered because of the injustice that came from my own hands. Genuine conversion always admits our own sin. Genuine conversion paints ourselves as lost and beyond hope and unable to save ourselves, even in the smallest way. I was so lost, and there was utterly nothing I could do for myself, but God the Father, who is rich in mercy, sent God the Holy Spirit, and he came and did a heart transplant in me. I was born again. I was given the life of the Son of God. Now, it is true that when Ephesians speaks about the new birth as as having been raised to life, it does add the words, It was by grace we have been saved, and then that this grace came to us through faith. But as I've said, we're going to get to that, but here, let me simply concentrate on that one wonderful statement. It is by grace that we were saved. Grace is something we can't earn. It's not something we can produce. It's not something we merit. You know, in other words, I didn't make grace happen. God made it happen, and if it were not for God, it would not be grace. Don't you see, it is this glorious truth that makes the Christian gospel so much different from any other religion. The Christian faith, the Christian gospel, and indeed, the story of every genuine conversion is the glorious truth of what God has done. I remember a very dear woman who came to faith in Christ, and and the next week after her conversion, she told me a story. She said that she was driving to work along a stretchway of road that she always used. And there were often birds on that roadway. And she said that the day after her conversion, she noticed that the birds looked different than she had ever seen them. She said, I'd never noticed that these birds were created by God. And now I also noticed that this is the very same God who encountered me and who saved me. So what was she saying? I think she was saying exactly what John Newton wrote in his wonderful song, Amazing Grace. She was saying, I once was blind, but now I see. Now, before leaving this topic, one note for all those who were converted at a very young age, even those who were converted when they were so young, they they clearly don't even remember the date of their conversion. May I say that even if you don't remember your conversion date, if it was a true conversion, you will say the same. You will say, I once was blind, I I once was dead in sin, I once hated God, I once had a heart of stone, but now I see. Now I'm alive to God, now I find His commands delightful, now I'm delighted to repent of my sins daily, now I have a heart of flesh that responds to the living God who rescued me and gave Himself for me. My dear friend, if you can say that with integrity, you have been born again, for everyone who is born again is born of God. See, this is not just a theology. This is a living experiential reality that is true of every child of God.
0: John, help me clear something up. You know, I know a lot of people or a number of people that, that grew up in the church and when they look back, they can't point to a time and say, this is the time that I gave my life to Jesus.
1: Yeah, and uh, there are many people who are genuinely born again Who have that very story. So, you know, I'm going to say it tomorrow that there are marks of being genuinely born again. There's a a change in me that I love the things of God beyond all other things. So, I I can say that and I know lots of people. Jesus, I know, is the Son of God, died on the cross for me, all those things. Here's what I'm going to say to that. You may not know the day of your conversion. However, you are aware of your conversion. So, the Holy Spirit at one point in time did an instantaneous work in you, changed your heart. You perhaps are too young to remember how significant that was, that happened. You may not know the moment, but you are aware of its significance.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, John, and remember to join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.
2: From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for the Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh-Again Southern Caribbean cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and special ministry friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weed. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with friends and family and enjoy incredible ports of call, an amazing ship, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.